Hi guys, welcome to the God's Not podcast. You're here with Alex and Jenny today. Um, we've got a special for you. Black Lives Matter Roundtable with four great black men who are living in America at present. From the East Coast, we have two from the East Coast and two from down South. And honestly, I mean, this special, you need to stay tuned because you do not want to miss this. Stay glued to your seat. We thought it was necessary to have this podcast in light of what's happening in America at present um, with Maud Aubrey, um, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and even Chris, um, Christian Cooper as well. Um, and the many other events that's happened and situations that we don't know about that haven't been on camera. So we thought we'll bring all of these different incidents to light um, for our UK viewers as well, um, so that we can understand our black brothers and sisters, um, their struggle um, in growing up and living in America and facing racism and oppression. Yeah. And before we start, I just want to say, if you want to follow us, connect with us at The God's Not, um, we're on Instagram, so the underscore God's underscore not. Um, but yeah, we're going to go. I just want to take time to introduce our four black great men who live in America. Um, and I want to take time to introduce them properly. Um, so you get a sense of, you know, their background and where they're coming from and realize that, yeah, there's black America, but there's black America, but there's different shades of black America. So our first guest um, we have is David. Um, David is a black British citizen who moved to the US 18 years ago when he first came to study for college. He is also the founder and CEO of Global Village Advisors. And he um, has had previous experience working in investment banking, namely the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. And he has been married for nine years and has two young black sons that he's also raising in North Carolina in America. Hi, David. Do you mind saying hi so they know who your voice is? Hi. <laughs> and then secondly, we have um, Kwame. Kwame is a Ghanaian American who moved to the US at the age of seven. Um, Kwame is a resident doctor, currently training in anesthesiology in New York. And he recently has been working in the front line in hospitals in New York, treating COVID-19 patients in the worst hit state in America. And so I'm sure he's also seen how Black America has been affected by COVID-19. And now it's been compounded by what is going on with um, the, the racial tension that's happening in America. He's also... Um, a founder and president of the non-profit organization, Odora Outreach. Um, and so he's very active as well in the community and has a heart for the community um, and just educating people around, um, you know, health as well. Kwame, say hi so then they can hear your voice, sorry. <laughs> hi, everybody. Um, and then we also have Derek, who is an African-American, born and raised in Alabama. He is ex-US military and he has served in the US Air Force for six years. Derek um, now lives in Texas, so he's a Southerner, Southern American, um, and he ha he's been married for three years and has a beautiful daughter that he's raising in Texas, Houston. Um, Derek is also a recent college graduate and a software developer at Chevron. Um, hi, Derek. What's going on, everybody? Um, and lastly, but by no means least, we have Kay, um, who is an African-Canadian who now lives in the U.S., um, he is a husband and a father, 
Um, but very interestingly, Kate is a practicing attorney in the US who has spent several years defending police officers in civil rights cases. So we have an amazing roundtable lined up, um, you know, four great black men who are in, you know, four different fields in America, live, you know, in four different places who can really shed light on what it's like to be in black America. Um, so welcome all. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and Alex, I guess, can you share a bit about, you know, being a black man in the UK, just a little bit so they can get a sense of what we go through so they can, you know, you know that, you know, they know that we feel. Yeah, I mean, for us here, well, I can speak from my personal experience. Um, I guess when we look at the brutality, police brutality, especially in America, um, I wouldn't say it's as severe here, um, but it is here. Um, they don't where, have guns. Yeah, they, I, I, exactly. They don't have guns. Um, but I guess their, their weapon is their words and you may, maybe the way they handle you as well. And the profiling as well is on another level. I mean, you know, growing up from, from, about, from about 17 to about the age of 24, I've been stopped on numerous occasions. I mean, there, there was one week I got stopped at least twice every single day. Um, I've been put in handcuffs because I've been told that um, my license was suspended and um, I was told to come out the car. As soon as I came out the car, I was put in handcuffs straight away and put in the back of a car. And I was thinking, what's going on? This is, this is crazy. Um, wasn't really given a proper explanation, just told that my license was suspended, which I knew it wasn't. They did their checks, found out that it was the wrong person. Um, and took the handcuffs. When the handcuffs were on me, it was really, really tight, really tight. And I told them to release the handcuffs because it's tight and it's hurting my wrist. And they paid no attention to me. Um, I didn't want to kick up too much of a fuss, although I was fuming. Um, but at the end, you know, they were wrong, obviously, because my license wasn't suspended. Um, but there was no apology. And I was just told to go my way, um, which I was very upset about. And there's, to be honest, that's just one of many yeah. <laughs> many and um i guess yeah when it comes to like dealings with police here it's it is difficult and we do get you know stopped and searched because of us being black yeah. simple as there's 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 no there's no other reason for it um it's a real thing and obviously us seeing it in the us um we can resonate with it and Obviously, recent events when we've seen with George Floyd, um, you know, the police officer's knee on his neck. Um, we look at that and think, you know, enough is enough. enough is enough. And we physically haven't had anyone's knee on our necks, but I guess it feels like that the way it's been going on for so many years, just being stopped for no reason because of color, because of the color of our skin. Yeah. And before we um, go into asking you guys questions. Um, I wanted to read something that I put on my social media this week, which has, um, I think, helped articulate how black people in the UK are feeling, even though, you know, we are not in the US. Because some white people are like, why, why are you guys getting so emotional about what's going on? And I want to read it. And then I'm going to open the floor for you guys to share some experiences. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear if you resonate with what I've written. Um, so I said, racism is not always extreme like in the case of Amord Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Christian Cooper, 
What does it look like on a daily basis? What does it feel like for those who are, who have experienced it but can't quite articulate that it was racism? It is a matter of distrust, not necessarily hate. Racism looks like this. You don't trust our children to be friends with yours. You don't trust our children to marry yours. You don't trust us to lead client meetings. You don't trust us to manage teams. You don't trust us to be your teachers. You don't trust us to be your doctors. You don't trust us to be your nurses. You don't trust us to be your pastors. You don't trust us to be on your leadership boards. You don't trust how we have been successful. You don't trust us to be your contractors. You don't trust us to be your financial advisors. You don't trust us when we are walking down the street with our friends. You don't trust us when we sit next to you on a train. You don't trust us when we drive in a, a nice car. You don't trust us when we walk into your shops. You don't trust us because of the color of our skin. That is racism. That is what is choking us. This is what is causing us not to breathe. So I wrote that on my social media and I had a lot of people black, but also a lot of people who are not black who said, okay, I get it. And I've, yeah. I've done that before. Um, and so I just want to open up the floor and I want to ask Derek, I want to go to you first. You were born in the South, lived in the South. I mean, Alabama is an interesting place to say the least. Can you resonate with some of the things that I, I said and can you share anything to demonstrate what it's like? Well, um, <clears throat> yeah, I can. Um, surprisingly though, even though I was born and raised in uh, Alabama, um, I didn't, um, I was never in a position to experience um, the full weight of blatant racism directed solely towards me. You know what I mean? So yeah. I kind of, uh, I'm blessed in that regard to never be in a position to um, interact with somebody on that level. But mm. uh, I've seen, I've been on the scene when a friend of mine, um, a coworker of mine, um, has been uh, the recipient of something like that. So um, I remember in um, in high school, you know, uh, just being on the wrong side of town uh, at the wrong time of the day. You know, police will stop my friend, um, put him in handcuffs, say, "Hey, you're not supposed to be here." That seriously, that was the only reason they gave him for why they put him in handcuffs. You know, you're not supposed to be here. Um, and I remember uh, following him, uh, following them down to um, the police station just to get him get him out, you know. Um, it's But it's things like that that you see on a daily basis um, in the South. You know, that's, you know, the birthplace of the civil rights movement, you know, here, mm -hmm. here in the South. Um, you see that every day. And it's not always that blatant, racism um like you said it's the it's the coded it's the covert uh racism mm -hmm. and um that's something i can really really get into um when we get into uh, um, my time in the military but yeah. um yeah i'm kind of blessed in that regard to never be um in an interaction say with a with a police officer where he's slamming me down you know in a position where you know there there's physical violence um exerted mm -hmm. against me uh, things like that but um, I have been followed in, in, in stores. Um, I, actually last week I was, I was followed in a furniture store, you know, um, and, and it's things like that. Like you said, Jenny, um, they, don't, they don't trust us to 
um, you know, business with them. They don't trust mm -hmm. us, um, not come in and not steal something from them, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, mm -hmm. I can buy anything I, I want in this store, you know, you don't, yeah. you don't know me like that, you know, um, but at the same time, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, if I get so frustrated and, and leave, you know, take my business somewhere else, that's what they want anyway. You know, a racist person like that, well, they don't want you in their store. They don't want you around them, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also, uh, well, I guess we'll get into it, but I, I want to make the distinction between uh, racism and oppression. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of overlap there. Um, mm -hmm. Oppression here in, in this country, it is based off racism, but there yeah. there is a difference you know um but yeah I, as far as as far as me um just being the recipient of just blatant racism um I, I don't have too many stories about that but covert racism i can talk about i can talk about that all day i, I like that example you brought um derek with um about you being followed in the furniture store and um i was telling jenny today actually that there was a time when i just went to go and buy milk and we've got Tesco Express. So Tesco Express is like a, a mini supermarket. So I've gone into this mini supermarket, Tesco Express, and um, I've just gone to buy milk. It's my local, by the way. So, you know, I go there all the time. But this security guard was a new security guard. So I, he hasn't seen me before. Literally every aisle that I went down, I saw him poking his head. I was thinking, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> I, I went down the first aisle, he's poking his head, looking at me. The second hour, he's poking his look. I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is getting ridiculous. I just picked up the milk. I went to the self-service checkout. I paid for it. I don't usually take a receipt, but this time for this guy, I took a receipt. I went up to him. I said, here you go. Here's a receipt. And he looked at me like, you know, what, why are you showing me this? I said, oh yeah, here's a receipt. I want you to look at it to show you that I paid for it. I said, I live in this area. I have kids. You know, I'm, I'm not struggling. I don't need to steal milk. So why are you following me on every hour? He's like, oh, no, no, no. It's, it's not that. It's not that. And I said, no, it is that. You need to stop that. That's not right. And I gave him the receipt to have a look at and make him ponder that what you're doing is not right. You're making me feel uncomfortable in my own local store because you don't trust me. For what reason? The color of my skin. So it's a real thing. It's a real issue. And I don't know if anybody else here can... Um, you know, share some experience of when they had a run run-ins with police. Um, I know Kwame. I mean, remember Kwame. Actually, you told me. Yeah. A, a story. yeah. So yeah. Oh, but, e but even I just wanted to talk about just like people just not trusting in what you're doing and just thinking you're up to no good. Even in my residence where I live, if I'm coming late at night, if I'm wearing like a hoodie or just like regular slacks, and I'm come, I'm walking to my own place where I, I'm living and I pay rent for I see a group of family <laughs> members like outside and I guess they're also coming to their apartment they look at me and they just get so scared and they're just staring at me and I'm just like what are you what are you looking at I'm so confused like why do you think that I'm coming here to take something away from you you know and yeah. it's just like that feeling yeah. it's, it's very embarrassing you know it's an awkward feeling to, yeah. to have to experience because you're just like why do I have to give you a reason to not be scared of me. Like already, just from you looking at me, you're already scared, you know? And as yeah. you and your whole family, and you're just like trying to, you know, almost like defend yourself to something that hasn't even occurred yet. And I'm just looking at you like, you look really stupid doing that. But stuff like that, those type of feelings, is just, we, we get it on all different levels, like from everywhere, from civilians, from regular people, 
who are non-black and then we get it from the police which is even you know that one could be a matter of life and death you know and I, my yeah. mine was kind of uh i kept it to myself for a while just because i was I, honestly my whole i was embarrassed i just don't want I, I never wanted to play the role of a victim you know like i just you know and that's what i thought it was initially you know and having that happen to me i remember it was like 2000 and it had to have been 2011 or 12 i was driving back how old were you i was probably like uh, i think i was like 24 23 or something like that um and i was just driving for I used to commute from home to school, so I was just driving on the highway. I had a um, a, a cop behind me just stopped me out of nowhere, and I'm just like, okay, I, I know I wasn't speeding. What could this possibly be about? But it was two cops coming out of the car, and I was just like, why is there two cops coming out the car? Because you could see from the rear view mirror, you're like, okay, so what's happening? And they reached out for their they they had their hand on their gun already, and then wow. I was so scared. I was. I was definitely like, okay, they had the wrong person. What can I do to not, you know, start mm -hmm. with them? That's how I'm thinking. I'm like, I already know that they think that I'm somebody that I'm not. But that whole encounter, you know, they didn't even want to, they didn't even feel comfortable coming next to, you know, the, the side of me. They wanted to come in front of me and look at me and tell me to roll down the window on the passenger side. It was just a whole bunch of stuff until they saw that I was like very scared and like, what are you doing? That's when they, they started to kind of double down and try and come up with excuses for why they, you know, picked out my car. But even at that time, I was just like, I feel like I was just so in shock that it was happening that I wasn't thinking about, let me get your badge number. I wasn't thinking about how can I write this, this, this cop, this police up. I was just thinking about like, really, this is really because of the color of my skin. Like, and the whole day I was like very sad about it because I'm just like, man, like, this is what we have to deal with. You know, somebody who's going to school, I'm in a, four, you know, like an undergraduate institution trying to get my degree. I'm not up to anything, you know, like bad, you know? So, and, and they never take, they never take the blame for it. They'll always try and, you know, say it was something else. Oh, you're driving tenant windows or something like that. And I'm just like, really? And I'm sure if it was somebody else that of a different color, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have done that, you know? And it's like, yeah. that happened to me a while ago. And I think at that time I could keep my mouth shut, but nowadays if that happens, like you're you're getting written up. Like I'm definitely taking the action to against you, you know. But That's yeah, that, that was my experience. Can I ask, hey though, okay, you are um, a defense attorney in that in this case where a police officer stops someone wrongly, for example, and Kwame saying if that happens now, he's writing it up, he's getting their badge number. Do they? Do we actually have those rights? Will something happen or not? Like realistically, yes. Uh, actually, you, you got everybody has the right to report a police officer for like a bad encounter, right? So there's something called like the Civilian Review um, Complaint Review Board, right? And every I I think that every major city in the United States has it, and maybe I, I don't know about London and England, but you guys probably have it too. You could call. They're they're independent from the police, right? But they work with the police so much that you know, sometimes they become, it, there's a relationship that builds up, right? So, but they're independent from the police. You could call, report it, right? And they will investigate it, right? And if it's, if it's actually what they, so in New York, they have like two classification, if it's substantiated or unsubstantiated, right? Which basically means that if they believe you and if they don't believe you, right? So if they believe you, 
the police officer actually gets that on his record. So okay. whenever, you know, when, and if, I think if you get three of them as a police officer, if you get three of them, right, you, you, um, they take away vacation time or pay. So it's a, it, it, it's a way to kind of check their actions, right, with the public. And it's, and it also gives the public a way to kind of report these types of things. But a lot of people don't. And a lot of people yeah. don't follow up, right? Because during the investigation. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I was going to say, can you give us some, or, or the black men that are listening, what are the key things that they need to get down? Like what information, if something happens and it's completely wrong, what's yeah. the best way to get the evidence? What type of evidence they need? How do they defend themselves to, to report this? Okay, so the most important thing is that you have to calm down. Right, because mm-hmm. if because you're outraged, you're embarrassed, and you're mm-hmm. you're angry, right? So and that that could affect how you collect the evidence, support whatever mm-hmm. claim you're gonna make, right? So you have to calm down, right? Then if you're able to record, record it on your phone, right? Um, if you're if you're able to like you know write down notes, write it down, right? Just calm mm-hmm. down and ask questions. Why am I being arrested, right? Um, ask, uh, also ask questions as to um, if they say, okay, you fit a description, right? It's like, how did you receive that information? How did you receive the, um, you know, the, this suspect that you're looking for? Like, did, did your supervisor tell you that we're looking for this person? Did somebody call 911? Um, did, um, did, did somebody call in and report that we're looking for a black male six feet um, with braids or, or bald head, right? How did you receive that information? Just ask all these information, ask mm-hmm. it, and they'll tell you. They'll say, oh, you know, I got a radio call that um that that we're looking for, you know, for example, a guy, uh, a black guy with glasses, um, 5'10". You got a radio call. Okay, so after you're, if they don't process you and after you're released, just speak to an attorney, give them this information, and the attorney will ask for that radio call, mm-hmm. right? And and if the information is actually you know a black guy, five ten wearing glasses, that's fine. It, it corroborates whatever it is that you're asking for, um, whatever it is that um, reason that they used to stop you. If it's not if it if it's like if they're looking for a white guy or like any random black, a black guy that's seven feet, you know, has braids, and it doesn't fit your description, then you mm. you catch him in the lie. Yeah. 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 So and. And to speak about what Kwame was saying about the embarrassment, right? It's um, it's something that kind of like it, it catches you off guard because mm-hmm. usually you're in a professional setting or you're in a setting that you don't expect to be discriminated against, right? And it catches you off guard and basically ruins whatever plans you have going on for the next hour or two. I don't know how long it mm-hmm. takes people to get over it, but it's like. I'll give you an example. I had a story. Um, I have I have the story. Um, I went to um a meeting. It was a conference. It was um it was a settlement conference with about twenty attorneys in the room, right? And I was the only black person in that room. So wow. twenty attorneys, and this was like kind of a pretty big deal. So I prepared for I don't know hours before going in, right? So I had my my mindset. I was ready. You know, it's like whatever questions they ask me, I'm ready to go. I'm wearing a suit. I walk into the room. I sit down, set up my laptop, right? Still working. Some woman from across the room with 20 attorneys. It's like we're all spread out in like, um, you know, conference table. And 
some woman from across the room walks up to me and says, hey, I'm going to the bathroom. Watch my purse. All right? And just walks out. <laughs> like, I'm, and I'm not sitting next to her. I'm not even anywhere close to her. She's across the room with like 10 wow. uh, people next to her. She walks up to me and says, and says that. I'm like, um, okay. So wow. I keep typing and I realize what just happened. And I, you know, and the guy next to me, who was a, a younger white male, right, also realized what just happened. Yeah. So, like, nobody was talking to each other. But after she did that, he turns around and tries to, like, hey, so how's it going? Right, tries to make me feel better. And at that point, my whole game plan is out the window because, you know, I, I prepared. I spent so much time preparing for this. And now this little incident just throws me completely off. Right. And attorneys, attorneys purposely use that like sometimes. Right. I, I've been to countless like, you know, depositions or whatever, and they will use that, the, the, those microaggressions to throw you off as an advantage. Right? And, you know, that's that's the more to me, that's like the part of racism that really, really annoys me. Right. In a way, I'll say annoyed because if I say angry, then, you know, it takes it to a different place. That really annoys me because it just completely ruins your day and people expect you to get over it right away. Yeah. So, so Kwame, actually, Kwame, you go on. You go. I'll, I'll, I'll speak after this. You go. No, no, no. I just wanted to talk about what Kay just said, how it could just, it just completely messes you up for the rest of the, whatever you're doing. I mean, in medical school, we have small group sessions. And of course, there's not that many Black people in it. So I was... I was the only black person in my small group, and the uh, the the doctor who was there, uh, leading the small group, was just making a lot of like very like racial connections. I was just like, "Yo, you're really, what are you saying right now?" Like, no lie, he told me that you look like my patient Tyrone. Like, seriously, my patient. Tyrone. Yeah, yeah, no, seriously, he called me Tyrone, and I was like, "What?" He's like, "Oh, sorry, what? My name's Kwame." He's like, oh yeah, you know, sorry, it just you look like one of my patients I have, you know, his name is Tyrone. And I was like, what? Like, and it, it's it's crazy because it's like Tyrone, like it sounds like a joke, but this really happened. And it's like, this is a small group session, you know, we're collab- we're supposed to, you know, be engaged and make all these like, you know, we're learning. It's a learning environment. And I can't get over the fact that this dude just called me Tyrone and then said you look like Tyrone, and then what's your name again? And it's just like I don't know. I couldn't, the whole two to three hours, all I was thinking about was just like, man, like, I can't stand this guy. Like, I don't even want to speak anymore. Like, what are we even talking about? You know, and it's just like that. That's the type of stuff that we have to go through that and, and on top of everything else. You know, learning the material is hard on its own. And now you're like racial profiling me, making me yeah. somebody else that yeah. I'm not. And it's like everybody in the room is like, oh my God, that sounds so racist. And he just doesn't yeah. even feel it. And it's just like, you, yeah, that type of stuff is like we have to do that all the time, man. Like all the yeah. Time. I mean, I could I could definitely resonate with both stories because you know recently, just recently, probably about you know probably what four months back or so, um, I was on my way to work early in the morning, and I was in London Bridge. So London Bridge train station is quite a busy train station, very busy. Like you know, there's um, hundreds, probably thousands of commuters going in and out. And um, I'm going down the escalator, and then there's this white guy um, who's on the platform. 
and I could hear him having a conversation with another white guy. Um, and then something about, oh, should I call him a nigger? Should I call him a nigger? Something, I heard something along those lines. So I thought to myself, uh, you know, I, I heard it, but I paid it no attention. And then I'm going down the escalator. Bear in mind, we're in a busy station. There's loads of people there. And then this guy shouts out to me, hey, you nigger with attitude. Honestly, my heart, <laughs> I don't know, I felt like I went to another planet because I felt like the whole earth just stopped. And I was thinking to myself, wait, is this guy talking to me? If I'm being honest, I didn't know whether to go back up that escalator that was going down and confront that guy or to just go down the escalator and just get out of the place because I, I, I'll probably do something that I'll probably be, I'll later regret and probably be front page news or the Sun newspaper or something like that. But then I was so troubled. I literally had to just go down the escalator. It was so embarrassing because it's in front of thousands of people. Everyone stopped. Everyone looked at me. I just had to like literally just get out the station fast. Literally, I was power walking. Got into my office now. I tried to explain it to my boss, who is, he's, he's white. Well, yeah, he's, yeah, basically he's white. And my other colleague as well, who's white. And their reaction just disappointed me. It's just like, they were just, oh, but um, you know, it's like, you know, Dr. Dre's group, you know, niggas, you know, it, it was nothing really personal. And honestly, that, that messed me up the whole day. I was so upset. But that's how I, I know that it throws you off when mm. that happens. And it, and it's, it is embarrassing. I want to bring David into the conversation. And David, I mean, you moved to America at the age of 18, so just for college. So I'm not sure if you've had any runnings with the police before being in the UK. Um, or is there a different, can you, can you just share some experience that you've had in America and if you feel like it's similar or different to the UK? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to one of your friend's point, I haven't had, I've had some experiences, but nothing on the uh, level of, you know, violence or um, nothing brutal. But there been, there was a time where I was actually pulled over, I think a year or two years ago. And um, the police officer, he came to my window and I'm like, is there a reason why you're pulling me over? And he goes, I just need to check something. So I'm like, okay, like he really doesn't have a, a reason to pull me over. So he does some check in his database and he's like, your registration um, is expired. Literally, it expired like I think two days before, but you have a grace period. But he literally had no reason to stop me because when I asked him, he's like, I need to go check something. And it's like, okay, are you, are you trying to fish for anything? Um, luckily, he didn't really have anything to, um, he couldn't even really give me a ticket um, because you have, I think, a week or a couple of weeks to renew the registration. But um, that was an instance. And then um, th there was another instance um, um, with, with, with my uncle, my mom's brother. Um, and we were going to... My, my uncle was, my uncle used to live in Connecticut. He used to teach at Yale, actually, in the medical school. So he, he's a doctor. Um, my older sister wasn't feeling well. And so we had to stop off in some random place in Maine to get a prescription. And literally, um, the person there didn't believe my uncle was a doctor. And he literally had to have, like, Yale University, like, 
send stuff in there. So we were we, like, we wasted like an hour and a half um, on a, I mean, it's, it was a long road trip to begin with, but we're in this store for an hour and a half um, trying to sort out this prescription issue. And literally they did not believe my uncle was a doctor because he doesn't, he doesn't dress like one. You look at him, you, you won't be able to tell, but he, he had all the right ID and everything, but it was just like, they didn't believe him. Um, wow. he, he even told me, um, after that incident had happened, he was telling me all the stories like he's been through. And one story that he told me that blew me away was he had the American express black card and that's most people don't have that. So he goes into Macy's and the lady takes his card, goes in the back and is like, your card is declined. So my uncle pays with cash. So my uncle goes home, he calls American Express and he's like, I've never used this card before. So how, how can this card be declined? So they tell him that the person in Macy's reported that the card was stolen and canceled. Oh, wow. And so he came back to the store and they were like, we can give you, uh, he complains, like we can give you a $500 gift card, blah, blah, blah. And my uncle's like, $500 for me is, is nothing. Um, you know, he's like, the only thing I want you guys to do is to make sure that this doesn't happen again to somebody that looks like me. So, you know, we've, it comes on so many different levels in this country. Like, like you're saying, like most of us are probably not going to be on the receiving end, like with the knee on the neck, but there's just so many things, not just with police, but with people. Um, sometimes you go into a store and somebody asks you, um, you, you know, can you show me where the, where this aisle is? And I'm like, I don't work here. Like I'm, I'm, I'm here in the store like you, you know, they, they just look at you and I'm not even, you know, it's not like I'm wearing the store uniform, but they just automatically assume that you might work here. And it's like, come on. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it comes on so many different levels and not just from the police, but just people in general, even in, the, even in, even in a corporate setting, they automatically assume that you're on affirmative action. Like you must have come through some program, you know, so you, you have to like work harder to just even like, if I'm mediocre, that's bad. That's bad because when times get tough, it becomes political. Like, you know, you know, we do the happy hour thing. You're not there, you know? So it's like, for a black person in America, it's work to be a black person in this country because you, you, you can't be mediocre in anything because people will have something to say. It's that trust thing that you were talking about. They don't trust you. Um, you know, even when I was doing investment banking, it was like the black MDs, like you hear people saying, he's not that smart. And it's like, this guy went to Harvard. He's, he used to work at Goldman Sachs. Like, how are you going to tell me like this guy is not that smart but you 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 hear it and it's packaged in different ways depending on what setting you're in um you know corporate have a certain way of doing things like i remember in one of the jobs that i had um my review was like you're performing at a high level but you haven't been here long enough okay fine the next year comes and it's like well you could be more vocal. Like they just find things to nitpick. Yeah. So you, you, it's never good enough. It's never good enough. So, I mean, I think 
it comes in different forms. And I think that's where the oppression versus the racism comes in. There's, it's, someone, someone is always trying to hamper your progress here. That's how I feel. Yeah. Derek, can you talk more about oppression versus racism? Because you brought that, that concept. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, um, so I just want to point out it, it doesn't cost one red cent to be racist. Uh, racism is a condition of the heart, you know? So for instance, if somebody is um, <clears throat> sitting on his front porch and he sees me walk by, he can think or feel whatever he wants in, you know, inside of himself. He can, he can think, well, I, I don't like him. I hope he doesn't, I hope he's not my neighbor. I hope he doesn't, I hope his foot doesn't touch my grass. I don't like his family. He can think any of that that he wants. It's wrong. It's, it's you know, it's evil. Um, but it doesn't affect me in the slightest. You know what I mean? It doesn't affect me as I go about my day. Now, when we get into, you know, um, oppression, we're talking about now you're stopping me from achieving things I want to achieve. Uh, for instance, if if you um, deny my home loan application or, or if you don't let me apply to your university or you don't want uh, my business in your store, things like that, now we're getting into oppression and now we have a real problem. Um, and those are the things that legislation can actually stop. We can, we can punish actions like those, um, but you can't, um, on a personal level, you can't change a person. Only God can change a person. Um, so you can't you can't really tell somebody, hey, stop being racist. And and they're like, okay, okay, I'm I'm not racist anymore. But as far as legislation and laws are concerned, you can punish people. You can put laws in place that actually deter people, um, not 100% prevent them from being racist or, or doing oppressive things. But um, you can deter people from from. Uh, oppressing other people. Um, so, uh, for instance, if, if you make, um, I was watching um, this show on TV, if you make um, uh, what happened to uh, George Floyd, if you make that offense just uh, a hate crime, a federal hate crime, and tack, you know, 40, 50 years onto something like that, I, I promise you it'll happen less. It'll, it'll happen you know, less often than it does now. But now it's like things happen and then the, the cop gets paid administrative leave, you know, or he's suspended, you know, for however many months. You know, that's not enough. We're, we're talking about justice, you know. So that, that's the distinction between, um, as the way I see it, in my opinion, between racism and oppression. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but, you know, somebody being racist in their heart, it really eats away at them more than it does me if they don't. I don't know. I can I can walk past them and they can hate me for whatever reason, but it doesn't affect me until they start acting upon that racism that's in their heart. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that, that's what I mean between the, okay. between the That's a yeah. good point. Can you what's your view on that? So you defend police officers and um Derek is just talking about, you know, putting things in like the justice system. But I don't know much about the justice system, but the documentaries that I've seen on Netflix about the US system, I just feel like there is no justice in that system. It's not to be trusted. Um what is your view on that? Like is America are the laws enough? Like what can they be what needs to happen so that we are not oppressed? So the oppression that Derek is talking about is it's is real and it's very complicated. 
um, you know, I'll just use my experience defending police officers, for example, right? There are objective facts about certain things that everybody agrees on. And there's very, and there's subjective, you know, facts about other things that, you know, people could argue about, right? And nothing is black or white. There's gray areas, right? And for example, if, a, if for um, what the George Floyd thing, if it happened um, in like a vacuum and people were talking about it, right? And there was no video of it, right? People, some people could say, well, the officer's not racist because this is what happened. He, he said he was arresting this guy and he, he just had to restrain him and he died, right? And other people could say, well, he's racist because he knew what he was doing. And he put his foot, uh, his his knee on somebody's neck for eight minutes and almost nine minutes, right? So it's like th there could be like different, th like different opinions about certain things, right? But oppression, right? It's so ingrained in the system that there's no way to basically just pull out the object objective facts and say like, oh, you know what? This is exactly what's affecting black people. Right. And we need to change it because what they could say is like with when, when, if it, when it comes to police, um, I guess, police policing in, in big cities, they usually allocate a lot of officers to black to like poor neighborhoods. Say, right. But poor neighborhoods happens to be black neighborhoods. Right. Mm -hmm. And they usually have the um, investigating officers like detective. Right. That do like, you know, small crimes like. Um, buying bus, and like you know, you know what? Some they, they pretend to be like a homeless person and buy drugs or something, right? They put them mm. in those neighborhoods, right? Mm. And there's more arrests coming from those neighborhoods because there are more cops there, right? Because wow. it's, it's a poor neighborhood, right? And mm. it's you know, it's like low hanging fruits, right? But there's also the same amount of drug possession and crime happening in, in white neighborhoods or rich neighborhoods, right? But there's not as much policing, right? So they could objectively say that, listen, this is why we're putting a lot of cops in that neighborhood, right? And that would justify the fact that, oh, great. That's why we're getting a lot of arrests because, you know, black neighborhoods tend to have more crime, right? Yeah. How do you, and in a way, you have to find a way to stop that first. You have to stop, like, you have to find a way to stop the fact that, like, the black neighborhood is, is poor, in a way, but, before but Kay, you can even stop the policing. But Kay, what what do you say to um, what do you say to the fact that black people are punished more harshly, like given the same crime, even when um, I wrote a paper on this in college. But even when, like, if there's black homicide, they're penalized less than if it was a black person and a white person involved there's, there's so much disparity so you have you you have the fact that we're policed more we're punished more harshly so it, it, it becomes even more compounded um because we're gonna we're more likely to be arrested the the severity of the punishment is going to be i mean you look at even the trayvon martin case and i'm just like i i, I can't even believe i can't even believe what i'm seeing um, you know, it blows my mind. I, I feel like the, the system, even if you strip out the fact that, you know, we're stopped more with this more, 
just even the rate at which we are punished for things, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. Even on the drug thing you were talking about, I, I was reading that um, when it was a major problem, like crack cocaine and the, I, I don't know, it come, apparently it comes in different forms. And I think the white guys, it's more in the powdered form. The, uh, yeah. the black people use the more crystalline, but it's essentially the same. The same drug, yeah. The same drug, but the black people are punished more harshly um, than than the whites, and so it's like you just this the whole system needs to be reworked, and I think it doesn't help in the political environment that we're in. It, it does, and and to answer your question in a way, it's um. It's, it comes back to the inherent distrust of black people, right? Because when you walk into a courtroom, right, the, um, the prosecutor is white. The defense attorney, if it's legal aid or someone, someone else, is white. The judge is white, right? Um, depending on what neighborhood or what county you're in, the jury might be white, right? So it's, and all of them have, believe, think, I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say that people think, but all of them tend to, like, sway towards the fact that you did it right why else would you be here if you didn't do it right mm. but in in, ter in in terms of like white people um if you if you guys remember like there was, a, there was this kid in stanford that got like arrested um that, that got convicted of rape right mm. and and the judge basically said that um you know based on his privilege and his upbringing he doesn't deserve jail time <laughs> Um, he doesn't deserve as much jail time, right? Yeah, and they released him after six months, right? It's um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't want to ruin his future, right? But it, we don't get the same benefit of a doubt as as black people. Like for, as a black attorney, I can tell you this: when I go to court and I make a statement as an officer of the court, you know, usually people could do it. I've seen it done all the time. It's like, y'all, I'm telling you this as an officer of the court, right? Believe my words, right? But when I do that. The judge is like, well, I need support, but I'm an officer of the court. <laughs> you know, it's like, you no, know, they, it's, it's like they really don't believe what we're saying, right? And it's just a, it's an inherent trust because I, I don't know what it is. Maybe they don't spend a lot of time with with us, or we don't have a lot of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, interactions. But it's it it happens everywhere, right? Um, I think James Baldwin actually said this. Um, it's um. As a black per if you're a black person in America, right, and relatively conscious, uh, you, you are constantly enraged, right, because you, you you see what's going on, you know that it's not, it's unfair, but you can't point to the objective reason why it's unfair, right, so that you could push the fact into somebody's face. And I think what that's what George Floyd have done because we have a videotape now, right, and you could actually see this officer, like, basically taking this guy's life. Yeah, and I guarantee you, if there was no videotape, there'd oh be no God. arrest. Oh, I can see no videotape. The medical examiner, they were trying to make it seem like it had nothing to do with the guy kneeling over his neck. Even with yeah. the tape, the medical examiner, the the one that they had hired in the court to do it, was ruling as if it was underlying conditions. Like even with the tape, they were saying you know that. I can only imagine if the tape wasn't there, it would just That's be like, yeah, let's just believe oh, no. whatever that he's saying, like. The most outrageous thing about that 
incident is um, I, I read the criminal complaint for um for the officer Michael Chauvin, right? And so he was his knee was on his neck for nine minutes, right? But he his knee stayed on his neck two minutes and fifty-three seconds. Two minutes and fifty-three seconds after he was dead, unresponsive. Right. So here's the thing. When he stopped breathing, right, the witnesses, like people around started pointing. He stopped breathing. He stopped breathing. Take your knee off his neck, right? And his partner, the Asian guy, took a yeah. pause. Tell them the Asian one who's also yeah. racist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He took he took um George Floyd's pulse and said, Hey, I can't I can't find one. He told his partner, I can't find one. Wow. Even with that, two minutes and 53 seconds, he's still unresponsive. He was unresponsive and he still had his, his knee on his neck for two minutes and 53 seconds. So somebody's dead and you still have your knee on his neck for two minutes. And, you know, most people don't, don't know, how, like, don't really kind of like appreciate how long two minutes and 53 seconds is. Right. Yeah. Like, just imagine you're counting, I don't know, to a hundred and uh, well, probably do the math, but whatever. Just count to you know, count for two minutes and 53 seconds and just rel just kind of take it in how long that is when somebody's dead and you, you still have like your knee on your neck. And if people even like just to get like more medical with it, it's when it comes to removing like the blood supply to your brain, you don't even want to wow. be counting in minutes. You wow. have like before you really do some like considerable damage. I mean, that's like a stroke. And it's like, that's what he was doing. He was laying on like a major artery, a vessel that supplies like a lot of, you know, like our brain, you know, and it's just, it's crazy that they could even try and twist it and make it seem like it wasn't what it actually was. And it goes back to what you guys were saying. It's like, we're never given the benefit of doubt. People are always trying to oppress us and make us seem like, whatever's happening it, it that's just what it was it, it wasn't because of something else i mean even in the new social media has like opened it up for us to see what is actually happening i mean the president talking about the 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 protesters the way that he was versus the protesters that were protesting about staying at home because there's a pandemic happening like just his language against people talking about racial oppression is just how they think about us you know and even they were talking about sports. There was a there was something on social media talking about how one of the newscasters on Fox News was was talking about Drew Brees and saying he's a good guy. You know, it's like he has a right to talk about stuff, blah, blah, blah. And then when it was LeBron and, and, and Kevin Durant, she said, you should just shut up and dribble. Like, it's I just, yeah, yeah, why yeah, yeah. do I say this for black people? And, and yeah. but then for white people, it's like, no, man. And for the kid who raped, the, raped the, the, the girl in Stanford, oh, no, he has a lot ahead of him. Let's give him another chance. And it's like, for us, it's like, no, that's it. Yeah, I mean, you look at Michael Vick. You look at Michael Vick. That's a classic example. This dog fighting thing. I mean, people have their views, right? But this guy was severely punished. And then you have another athlete, um, what's his name, Ben Rufflesberger, who actually raped women. And he just slapped on the wrist. Um, people don't even remember it. And it's like the black athletes, are they're, they're criminalized. Anything that they do, it's, it, it's the reputational damage is so much more worse. Um, it is. It, it, it definitely is, David. I want to bring Derek in and just ask about 
you know, what oppression looks like in the military? Well, yeah, that's a good question. In the military, you would think since it's a it's such a diverse group that it would be more progressive, um, you know. So um, <laughs> I was in the military from uh, 2005 until uh, 2011. So my time there, um, every every step of the way, starting in boot camp, um, uh, it was always um, I had to work harder, you know, because obviously I'm black, so they're looking at me like, oh, he, he's not the fastest. He's not the smartest, you know. Um, uh, even in boot camp, I remember um, there was this whole, uh, there, there was, there's this um, leadership position called the uh, dorm chief. So you're basically the, the captain of everyone in, in the, in the uh, dorms or whatever. So mm-hmm. there was a whole, um, I guess, uh, situation with me just, um, becoming the the dorm chief because I, I don't know I, I guess they choose somebody who, who they see uh, leadership qualities in um, and my MTI was also a black man so I, I believe there was a connection there he chose me as the dorm chief so all the other um, uh, um, guys that I was in uh, boot camp with they were looking at me funny like why they why he choose you why he choose you and I'm I'm like look I'm in this position because I'm supposed to be in this position you know it has yeah. nothing to do with it, it's it's like every time you're in positions like that, um, racist people, uh, they feel it as an attack on them. And it, it has nothing mm-hmm. to do with them. You know what I mean, so um, that was just in boot camp. So fast forward, I'm in, um, now I'm in Oklahoma City. And uh, I think I'm at E2, I believe. So uh, now I have this supervisor um, who's just, I mean, I, I'm just going to call him a bad guy. He, he was just... A bad guy. He he was one of those guys who always took credit for what you did. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So and I, I think in his case, he looked at me as if he didn't think I was capable of uh, being more or or um, being promoted uh, to higher levels. So everything I did, he would tell me. He would tell me, "Oh, you're not doing." He would critique. It's not constructive criticism. He would always tell me, "Hey, you did this bad." He would always point out what I did bad what I did wrong, but then he would go in front of his superiors and take credit for what I did. Um, yeah. So it's things like that you mm-hmm. see every day. And I saw that for years. Um, I think he was my my uh, supervisor for like a couple years. Um, but you see stuff like that. And over time, um, I believe some of us become numb to it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I, yeah. I appreciate conversations like this because it, it helps us remember like, dang, this, this happened to me, this happened to me, because now I'm remembering a, a lot of things that happened to me um, yeah. that I just, I don't know, I guess I, I just block out sometimes. So I, I remember mm-hmm. cops following me, for no good, following me for miles for no good reason. Every, I, I would just, I'm turning down streets just to see if this cop is going to continue following me. You know what I mean? Things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. My wife, when she, when she goes to work, sometimes she'll tell me, you know, how they under undermine her at work and in, in meetings when she's trying to speak up and then somebody would, you know, say something um, contradicting yeah. to what she was saying. And she's a black woman, so she gets it on two different levels. Very black You know, so uh, what's that, Jenny? <laughs> I said a very successful black engineer to add to yeah, that. <laughs> she, she also, yeah, she's successful. She also um, works at Chevron, so she inspired me, you know. So... It's things like that we have to deal with 
every day. Um, you know, and then I think, um, uh, Alex, you brought up how, um, you felt the need to show the guy your receipt in the store. Um, I now, you know, having these conversations, you think about, Oh, every time I go to Walmart, they ask me for my receipt, but they don't ask them. They don't ask them. They don't ask them, but they ask me when I get sure, you know, but it's things like that, um, that you see every day. Um, but going back, uh, to being in the military after I believe, um, like two years in the military, I decided this was not going to be my my life because there was that that covert racism of and you know I got stuck in a bad situation because it was my supervisor. Not everybody's like that, you know what I mean. But because I was in that that situation because that guy was my supervisor, I decided this is not going to be um, my career for the rest of my life because it's such a um, dog and pony show meaning you just you put on just to put on you know and yeah. and then it's for a black guy you already have to do that and then to yeah. on another level you know on another level it's just like it's it's too much i can be a civilian and and still have this weight on my shoulder if that i mean if that's the case you know so um that's how that's how it was when i was in the military um yeah. i remember even in um uh, AIT, which is uh, tech school. So I'm, I'm in school learning the job that I will be doing in the military. Um, mm-hmm. Just it's like things like the, the instructor would say, oh, like you actually, you know, pass this test, you know, things like that. What, like, what do you mean by actually pass this test? You know, um, things like other, other uh, students in the class would raise their hands, ask questions. Um, then I, I would ask questions and she would be like, doesn't want to answer my questions like why are you asking that question i'm like well everybody else doesn't know what you're saying i don't know and either you know what i mean i can't question you know so it's it's things like that that i saw just all throughout the military um and it was very surprising it wasn't uh surprising uh that you know racism exists in the world but it was surprising how how much it was in the military when it's such a diverse group and now if you you know um you know, look at the military, they're very, well, they try to be very progressive and everything. But when I was in, they even, um, um, they ostracized gay people, women, they didn't put women in certain, um, uh, certain positions and things like that. But now they, they try to do better. But it, it was just, it was surprising. That's one of the reasons why I didn't want to make that a career. Yeah, it, that that sounds like yeah a, a horrible experience to go through. Definitely, I wanted to get Kwame um, your take on oppression in the in the medical field. Um, I know we had a conversation and, and you shared a few things with me. Can you just shed more light on that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I can. De- I'll, I'll try and make this quick. Like, I know there's a uh, you're gonna feel being a medical student you also have like certain things that you go through just being in the medical field as a medical student and it's it's called the imposter syndrome you know there's so few of people that look like you that sometimes you feel like okay do i deserve to be here and people are also looking at you like prove yourself that you're supposed to be here so sometimes you feel like you're not where you're supposed to be, you know, and you've earned it just like everyone else, you know, and you'll, you'll spend time 
at school, you'll come to school and you'll be studying at the library. You'll leave for two seconds just because you want to go grab something to eat. You may have forgotten your ID. And literally when you're coming back, they're they're literally telling you, no, you can't come in. And you're like, oh, my ID is inside, which is an actual true story. I got into an argument with the security because they just they just don't want you to go in. They're just like, no, 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 you're not coming in. Like, where's your ID? And I'm like, I'm studying here. It's inside. Can I go get it? And they don't even want you to even get to that point. They're ready to kick you out and say all this other stuff. And it's just like, I know non-Black people do not have to go through this right now. Like, I I know that already. You know, that the fact that you're just looking at me and already profiling me. And it's like, as I'm talking, I actually got into an argument with him to the point where I was like, I think he started realizing that I was a student there. And then I think he started realizing that he was being racist and he was profiling. And then he started thinking, oh, he might tell on me. And it's like... But why did you do this in the first place? You know, I told you where my ID was. Why are you giving me such a hard time? You know, you're not even giving me time to explain myself. It's because you think I don't belong here. So that's like something that we have to face, you know. And even going to the point that uh, uh, Derek was making, just, you know, you you, you sit in a small group setting and you're answering questions and whoever's leading it, they always shut you down. Like, and you'll just see the pattern play out and you're like, I'm not crazy. You know, they'll ask you a question and you know how you're trying to answer it and they'll shut you down. But let's say somebody else who's non-black will ask the same question, will will answer it. It'll be wrong, but they'll be like, oh, I see what you mean by that. But like, and it's like, I'm I'm not even joking. I counted it with this guy, with this professor that we had. I was like, this is crazy. Every black person, me and my friend, only two black people there. He always said, wrong, that's wrong. No, that's not it. Does anybody else know what it is? But if it was somebody else who answered the question and they were wrong, he would be like, I see where you're going with it, but this this is where you should. And right there, I was just like, look at this. I can't, you just lose trust in the system. And you're just yeah. like, why am I even listening to this guy? You know, like, why am I even listening to what he's saying? He's not trying to, you know, like, he's not looking out for me learning this information. Yeah. He wants to shut me yeah. down. And then, and then in the medical field, just being as you get higher and higher in the medical field as a resident, there's less and less of people that look like you, you know. And it's just you—you you have patients now that don't want to even trust that you're a doctor. You have patients that are looking at you and just going like, "You're not my doctor." I, I've had—I had a patient who told me to my face like, "Where's the doctor that's coming to see me?" And I'm like, "It's me." And she's like, "I need a real doctor to come see me." And I'm just like, "What?" Uh-huh. And then you'll have your senior. And it's like, you haven't even, I haven't even done anything. I just came in here. I'm coming here to help you. And you're, you're like being racist against me for no reason. And you don't even like, what is it? What's going on right now? And then and you'll have your co-resident who probably doesn't really understand how you feel. And they're like, yeah, she's a little racist. I mean, and then that's it. That's just how it, that's, it's, it's over. And then you're just like, man, like, I feel like I'm all alone. And it's not, I'm not trying to blame them or anything like that. But it's just like, they're just kind of like, oh, this is a racist one. You're just gonna have to deal with it. You know what I mean? And it's just like, what? I really got to deal with this? Like, I'm here for so many hours, and I'm coming in here to help you. And you're you're over here telling me, because I'm black, you don't even want to listen to me talk and speak and help you out. So it's like, things like that. And then, like we were talking about with the whole COVID, the health disparity, the racial oppression, all the systematic oppression that's been happening to Black people and these this underrepresented communities, the gap of the health disparity is so huge that COVID is literally exposing it. You know, you have a disproportionate amount of minorities dying from COVID 
just because of their color. It's the truth, you know. You don't see. I mean, you'll see the COVID. This is how it was. It was it was old white people and then black and the Hispanics. It's like old white and then black and Hispanics. You know, and you know, the white population makes up a huge part. It's like seventy percent in New York alone, right? But and then in the, the African American population is seventeen percent in New York, right? But we have the highest percentage of fatalities from COVID. We have the highest percentage of just non-hospitalized infected COVID cases. We have the uh, highest uh, number of cases of hospitalized COVID positive patients, which makes absolutely no sense, right? Because it should be, you know, the, the people that are the most, that have, that have the highest part of the population. And that should just tell you, common sense, if you know how to understand just statistics, that doesn't make any sense. How is it that the lowest percentage of people are dying at a higher rate? There must be a problem outside of this. You know, there must be a problem other than the infection itself that's causing them to be affected by it, you know? And the thing that sucks about just looking at those community members is that one, they're losing their brother, their cousin, their uncle, like within the span of a week, just like that. Wow. Like things weren't already hard to begin with, you know? And it's like, no one is really jumping at fixing that problem, but I guarantee you if it was happening in a white neighborhood, I guarantee you if, if, the, if the percentage of people dying was more white than black, I think that we would be seeing a different you know, action of people, you know, like no one wants to address it because they're okay with it. They're comfortable with black people having to die off like that. They're not, they're not yeah, seeing it I as mean, a problem. I mean, I'm looking at this whole thing, right? When the lockdown started happening, as soon as they started understanding the demographics, black people were getting it more. It was like, let's, let's open up all these States. And I'm like, wait a minute, like yeah. oh, nothing yeah. has changed. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you want to open up the whole country, and you know you got guys like Trump saying like, you know, this whole lockdown is too harsh and it's too this. But as soon as we knew that black people were dying at a higher rate, open up yeah. the thing. Even if you go back and you look at the opioid crisis, I'm not sure if you guys know about that. Yeah. That that impacted white people. Yeah. Actually, the life expectancy of the U.S. declined because of that, and it was mainly white people that were being affected, they started going after the pharmaceutical companies, sending people to jail. Um, they were acting quickly, swiftly. Um, and it's like, if this, if the opioid crisis was affecting black people, I'm pretty certain that it wouldn't be, people would not be taking the actions that they took. At all. Is that what? Oh yeah, yeah. That's what they would say. Is it's crack cocaine and it's it's the poor, they're poor and they're they're up to no good. They started a whole ice stop because of this this crisis. Like there's a, we can't prescribe certain medications unless we ice stop you. Like the the and it comes it stems from that whole um uh, uh what was going on with the the um heroin and just the opioid crisis is the ice they came up with a whole thing just to stop it from happening but it was happening all the time in in in, in disadvantaged communities and now even with this covid crisis that's happening they're not even thinking about anything there's no action trump hasn't even really talked about it hasn't even mentioned it and there's nothing going to be done about it 
And it's just unfortunate because if it's them, they will rush rush to yeah. fix it. They have to figure out what the problem is. But now that they're looking at the numbers and they're like, oh, this is about 7%. It's not that much. Like, we could we could open it up. They're protesting for opening up store, opening up uh, businesses in the middle of a pandemic. And That's they can't even let us protest about racial equality and 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 you know police brutality against our our complexion like it just they're so it's so obvious like i don't know i think at this point right now you just can't be ignorant to this that that, that the stuff that's happening you know like this, this is the thing for me it's so obvious that you sit there and it drives you crazy um it, you think to yourself am i in a movie is this actually really happening are these people for real and all of that is working you up and then they want the response of the typical angry black man so they can label you. And then and that's how they shut you down. So all of these things here, I'm telling you, man, I, I'm, I'm just sitting here listening to it and I'm just thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. I just, yeah. I just want to ask Kay a question. So like, Kay, and I keep saying this, but you defend police officers. Tell us, how do you do that? How do you process that? And do it. He do the job. It's a job. That's how he does it. It's a job. I want to hear from Kay. Like, so, so it, it did take a toll on my on my mental health. But um, but here's the thing. I I I have um I have the African privilege, right? You know, because I I get to do things that you know Black Americans don't get to do, right? Uh, because like if you understand the history of this country, like no, it's it's really it, it's it's just I can't even put it into, into words, right? If you understand the history of this country, right? Uh, so when I'm defending police officers, right, they'll come into my office, right, and you're listening to what they're saying, but and they're describing a situation to you. Some of them are not even lying, right? But in your head, the dif- the situation looks different from what they're describing. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, what this is one of my worst cases that I ever had. Um, so these undercover cops, right? Four guys in the in the you know in, in the in the undercover car, right? Unmarked vehicle, right? And they were they patrolling uh, patrolling um, a very bad neighborhood, right? There was there were like shootings the days before. They were patrolling, right? And they see this kid walking on the street, right, on the sidewalk, right? The kid walks he, and they start following him slowly, right, with their lights off, slowly. Four four white guys in the car, big white guys in the car. Slowly, right? So this kid kind of catches them at the corner of his eyes and takes a quick turn, right? So, you know, they turn everything on and they put, they don't turn on the lights, but they just kind of like turn their light, the, you know, the car lights on and just kind of like pulls up to the kid, right? And says, hey, where are you going? Do you have ID? They start asking them questions and they get out of the car, right? And the kid starts like falling back. It's like, hey, leave me alone. Get out of here, right? So it, it becomes like back and forth. Eventually, the kid realizes that they're cops, right? But just back and forth, he pushes one of them, and the guy, the cop punches him in the face, you know, kind of fractures his orbital and everything, right? So he punches him in the face, right? And this guy is telling me the story, right? And he's not even seeing it from the kid's point of view. He's just seeing it from his point of view. I was, oh, oh, and I, I missed out a very key part of this, right? He was, kid was wearing a backpack, and it was weighing down, right? And they thought he had a gun in it because it was weighing down. Yeah, it was weighing down, right? So he punches this kid, they search him, and they find, they, they look into his backpack and they find a hairbrush, right? 
<laughs> and so they find a hairbrush and they still arrest them and process them and yeah for for resisting arrest for disorderly conduct right and 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 he goes through the process he goes through like he's arrested right and he, they, this cop is with a straight face not even thinking about what this kid was going through when there were four guys following him slowly in the car right so this kid his version is that he's coming from work right he and it's true. He like it's actually he actually have evidence to prove that he's coming from work, right? He's coming from work. He's walking on the dark street. There were shootings before. He's scared, scared out of his mind, right? These guys roll up on him slowly, right? So he, he tries to yo let me get out of here. It's, it's it's a human instinct, right? He tries to get rid of him, and then they get out of the car, and he's like, yo, I don't want to deal with you guys. Just leave me alone. Leave me alone. And he gets punched in the face. That's ridiculous. That, yeah, so I'm seeing it from that point of view, and he's like, "Yeah, I didn't do anything wrong." And I'm like, "Dude, <laughs> yeah, they really feel like understand. they didn't do anything wrong." I I don't understand that why they feel like they don't do, they didn't do anything wrong. Like even after that video we saw, it's like they're doing something wrong, but they never yeah. want to admit it, even when they're caught on camera. Yeah. So at that point, I realized that you know there's important work to be done by us, right? We have to have a seat at the table, right? Because mm. if he if he was telling the story to somebody else that kind of looks like him and understand where he's coming from, he misses the point that, you know, creeping up on some, uh, and, and the kid that, that doesn't understand that you're not trying to like, just ask questions about where he's going or investigate a crime. Right. But he's just scared and wants to get home. Right. Yeah. The kid was so scared that he actually picked up the phone and called his girlfriend and started talking to his girlfriend, like on the phones, like, Hey, you just yeah. keep me company. Right? So yeah. he didn't understand that part, but I, because I had a seat at the table, I was actually able to resolve the problem yeah. from that point on, right? It's like, okay, yeah. so how do we yeah. make this kid better, you know, th than what yeah. he was before? Or like, how do we kind of find a way to fix this mental trauma or hell that he's just went gone, gone through, right? Yeah. And I was, I was able to, I was like, yo, we have to pay on this. We have to pay a lot on this. And we did, right? And, yeah. you know, it's... There, there are the factors because the kid's attorney was, you know, was a different race and everything. And I'm sure he took most of the money. But, you know, it's it's that having a seat at the table that matters. Like, we yeah. have to be in the room when they make a decision yeah. like that. And we have to speak up, right? And Kwame was talking about mental health in a way um, when he was talking about the imposter syndrome, right? That That's very important because being Black and 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 I could just speak for myself in the professional setting, it's very isolating and exhausting, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you're always like doubting yourself, whether it's you, right? And this, you know, especially like if you if you guys interact with lawyers, lawyers are not that friendly, right? And they mm -hmm. always, you know, whenever you bring something like this up, it's like, hey, I this is not fair. And it seems like you're picking on me because of my race. They automatically go, what, so what evidence do you have? All he said was, you know, all he said, oh, all she said was, watch my purse. You know, it could have been anybody, right? Like, you know, all she said, all, you know, all, like, all he said was, um, uh, all she did was basically hold my black, uh, hold the black card because you don't know that there's, there's probably people using black cards to like purchase fraudulent, fraudulent stuff. You don't know. Yeah. Like, you know, it's yeah. like this, you never have like the proof, the video per se, yeah. show them that yeah. this is what happened and it's unfair, right? So you have yeah. to do it on your own. You have to find a way to like c calm 
calm the voices in your head and just say that it's not it's not you overreacting or being paranoid, right? But mm. this situation was objectively wrong, right? Yeah. And you and and you also have to find a way to be to help your fellow you know your your fellow black person, right? Or, or your fellow black man or woman, right? Mm. Because to speak on the part that is isolating is that because they don't want to interact with you in the, like they don't want to interact with you in a in a negative way they just avoid you right and yeah. if you're new at a company or you know at a firm or anywhere or, or, or you know on the floor at, at a medical institution you have to do a lot of stuff by yourself you have to learn by yourself nobody's willing to teach you because it's like they don't they don't have the time to like you know censor what they're saying to you and go through the whole PC process and like, you know, they, they just don't want, they just want to avoid you, right? Yeah. Because, you know, they don't want any complaints to HR or anything else. Yeah. And you just end up being by yourself. And usually we're, we're, we're the only ones there, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you see another, so what I usually do is like, when I see some a new black person coming to, in, into the workplace, I, I pull them aside and say, listen, if you need any help, let me know. If, if you need anything, let me know. If you have any questions, let me know. Because I've been through the mm-hmm. process where you, you just, you're just you just sitting there on the weekend trying to figure out everything yourself and you can't ask anybody. And, yeah. and everybody else is giving you the whole like, oh, it's fine, right? Then they're redoing it on the side, right? And you're like, mm-hmm. it's not fine. Like you need to, you need to be, you need to be like honest with me. You need to yeah. teach me how to do it. You need to like show me where I could do it. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, there are layers of prob- there's a lot of problems and I I'm just now focused on just the solutions. Yeah, and yeah. and just yeah. to go off of what uh, Kay was saying is I do agree that we we kind of have to start this change, you know, because I think sometimes when we're we're talking about these like harsh realities, it's like even me thinking about it, right? What's happening in COVID and in the community? I'm like, do I expect this white man high up wherever he is to really? care like is he really gonna go and do what's right he's probably not so i think that we you know we have to take responsibility as well if we're in positions where we could make some type of change to just do it on our own you know because but we do need to sit at the table though a lot of these the higher ups these people in like place uh, that are you know making the rules none of them look like us and it's so unfortunate because that's why things continues in the way that it is. That's why when it was the uh, uh, opioid epidemic, it it was handled the way it was. And I'm sure COVID is gonna be handled the way it's gonna be handled because the same people who are at the top making these decisions are the same people at the top making these decisions. And they don't really care about what's gonna happen with us in all fields, you know, with in, in the military and in, 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 in the courtroom, you know what I mean? In the, in the business setting, they just don't care because it's not a problem of theirs. So it's like, honestly, begging them to change it. I don't even wanna say begging them, but definitely, you know, educating them, making them aware. But I think we should also be the ones in the forefront going like, okay, this is how it could happen because they don't know what to do and they don't care. That's that's what it is at the end of the day. So we need a seat at the table and we need to come together and take initiative to do, to make those changes, you know? I've got I've got one last question as we wrap up and I guess to set the scene for that question like I've been thinking a lot about my own sons in this country and I think that now my sons are six and four and you know the white people will be saying they're so cute we'll be walking oh they're so cute 
But at what point do they become threatening? Like at what age now does my cute son become a threat? Mm. And I have to think there's a time that I'm going to have to sit down and say, you're no longer cute to them. So Mm. even if it's freezing cold, you cannot wear a hoodie. Like, Mm. do you know what I mean? And so I fear for that conversation and, and, you know, the only wrong that they will do is become tall and big and they're now villains. And, I just want to ask you guys who have children um, who you are raising in America, are you hopeful for the future for them? Are you, how do you feel about raising David, your case, boys in America? Kay as well, a boy. Derek, I don't know if it's much different for ladies, but. And Kwame, when you have your kids. Yeah, like what? what you I'm lying. Is this a real pivotal moment? Like, does it feels like it? People are listening in a different way. But what are you guys hopeful for the future for your children? To the dads? Yeah, I'll, I'll try and answer that. Um, I thought about it. Um, I think the challenge is that even though we're in 2020, I don't think much has changed um, over the last 50, 60. It, it really hasn't changed. It's just that the world is a more transparent place with social media, with these things. Um, in terms of how it relating it to my kids, it's, it's, it's one of those conversations that you're going to have to be continuously educating them along the way. You know, um, my sons don't know, um, like Jeremy doesn't know about the George Floyd thing. I, I don't think it's, appropriate to discuss it with him at his age he's only seven but i know those discussions are gonna have to come and say this thing happened on on the news um it was a black guy and he went you know um and this thing happens you know so when you're out there you've got to be calm Uh, like we we have to be a lot more not to say that we're not controlled because things do happen even when we're trying to mind our own business, but I think there's a lot more emphasis to remind the, um, your kids that you don't have white privilege. White privilege is a real, it's a real thing. Um, you know, people, I've heard people say, well, this generation is less racist because, you know, um, you know, it's 2020 and, people are more open, but I really don't think that's the case because even when I went to um, university um, in the dorm, I should have mentioned it earlier on, on this, this lady was scared of me. And only like after a year and a half, she was like, you know, I had never seen a black person before coming to um, university. And, you know, I always had the perception that, you know, um, you being a black guy, you're a certain way. And it's like, and that wasn't that long ago. That was like, you know, 2005, 2004. And so I think there has to be, for for me as a parent, it's just making your kids aware, but spoon feeding them the reality, not giving it to them in one dose. But, you know, as they're getting older, you have to kind of remind them that the world isn't, um, you know, colorblind. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's that's just what it is. Yeah. Um, and to follow up on what David said, um, 
I, I'm not, I'm slightly hopeful that you know the future might be a little different because people are more in tune now and more aware of like you know supporting black businesses or supporting black dreams and aspirations, right? Um, because it's you see it on social media. I'm not on social media, but I see it all the time that people are, are making a, an effort to actually like buy things that are made by black people or like, you know, wear black name brands or something like that. Right. And, and I, that's the key. We have to really support our own. Right. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. Because you can't always try to, push, you know, the, the general, the, the majority to, to include you in their circle. You have to, like the Jewish people, you have to do your own thing. And in case, yeah. Yeah. In, and in, yeah, and in case that you know you're oppressed in the majority, you could go into your neighborhood and still find a grocery shop where you could buy fresh fruits, or you could like you know go back into your neighborhood and find a black doctor that can operate on you, or you know, or, or just your your own people that will understand where you're coming from. And that's where my energy is shifted. Like I, I, you know, I, I, I say this all the time. I have the Nigerian approach now. Nigerians are very focused. They don't care what's going on around them, racism or not. Like they're <laughs> going after your goal, right? And you yeah. know, it, it's that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to like spend most of my energy helping my people, right? Instead of like trying to like understand why somebody doesn't want to accept me into their group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, but do do you feel do you feel that if you have the mindset that our own people have to do something this way? And these guys have to do something this way. In my opinion, I don't think it solves the problem because you're just looking for an alternative. But our group of people have to be on the same footing as this other group of people. You know, and I think yeah. that that's the challenge because you've got to get them to accept your group as equals to another group. Yeah, I think both approaches uh, like and eventually ends up in the same result because it's, if you're able to make your group stronger, right, then when you approach the majority with like a plan to change, right, you have a say, right? Because if, like for, uh, and again, I'll use the Jewish people as an example, right? Because they're able to improve their communities and um, be economically, you know, strong, they're able to approach the majority, the, the system uh, overall and, and, and have a say and like make demands. Like you can't you can't go to Hollywood Hollywood and and make any racial slurs about Jewish people. You're done, right? That's because they control that part of the economy or banking, for example, right? So I just think that in a way we have to be strong enough to up, we have to we have to build our own so that we can approach the majority and get them to understand where we're coming from and get them to accept us as equals mm. yeah so I, I, it sounds like both of it's pretty much like both of those things have to happen like it starts with us first but then we definitely you know like david said we have to be where they're making this decision but i understand what kay is saying is like you have to kind of show them like yo if you don't have us there you're you're, you're pretty much worthless you're not going to get anywhere but i think now what they try to do is we're trying to get there and they just continue to shun us for no reason they just don't want us in the circle. But if our circle, if what we're doing and we're together in solidarity is actually like 
you know, shown some type of uh, success. I think that then it's like the conversation is not about, uh, oh, we don't want them in here because, you know, we don't want to mess with black people. It's like, we kind of need them in here. Because they're able to do things. And 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 because I could I could just see that happening in other instances and in smaller types of like examples that I've been involved with, where I feel like when you do things right yourself, other people just automatically want to jump into it. You know, they they see it as a benefit for them. Right now, they just don't want us there because they they just like to have their own little pack. And I don't think that's going to change if we keep asking them, "Could we come in?" That's not going to change them. You know, so yeah, us doing it ourselves, starting ourselves, and then like going approaching them, and then you know, make. I think that's how we can have some inclusion in in, in there. So, so yeah, um, <clears throat> to piggyback on uh, what Kwame was was saying, I agree. Um, we have to be uh, the change that we want to see. You know, we have to be in these positions uh, where the justice system isn't crooked because of us. You know, we have to be in these positions where we're we're um, able to change laws, put laws into place and things like that. But um, to become a doctor, it takes years and years. To become a lawyer, it takes years and years. It takes even longer to become a, a politician in this position to actually write these laws. So my question is, what do we do in the meantime while the next generation is studying to become these 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 lawmakers, these these law enforcement officers, these lawyers and things like that? Because that's going to be you know, another eight, 10, 12 years, you know, from now. So what, what do you, you guys think? And this is for everybody. What do you guys think we should be doing in the meantime? It's a good question. So, I mean, I could, so with me, like what I try to do is uh, really go out into the community. This is the best way that I feel like I could help it. And just to like change their exposure. Cause a lot, especially in like Newark, where um, I'm also going to be going to, is an underrepresented um, areas. That's the hood. You know what I mean? A lot of the kids there, they don't see black people in the positions that, you know, take years and years to get to. So because they don't see that, they don't even consider it an option. So I know for me, just bringing what we're doing in medicine, and I hope to do that for other fields as well, I bring it to them. You know what I mean? I bring it to them in their school, in the community, if I can, it's kind of hard. So I try to take them out of their community and, and show them people that, you know, even though we're the minority in some of these positions, we do exist. So it's a possibility, you know? And so I think that the exposure, I think how we're looked at in, in social media, like all the, all the stuff that has been kind of shunning us and and only exposing the white people as this is what they're doing, I think that's how we could change it now is actually putting the camera on us so they could see there's someone else. And I think we have so many ways of doing that. Social media is there and they're, they're the, you know, the youth is on social media way more than we are like way more because they have so much time. Even the ones that are in the hood doing the, doing their thing, they're on Instagram, you know? And I feel like if they get a chance to see people like us now, they know that that's a possibility. And we're so bright. I mean, I see some of these kids in, in the communities that I work with, and they are so smart. But what happens is their environment is what takes them off their, their, their track, you know? And they just become a product of their environment. And I understand that. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, um, that's what happens, you know? And it, I feel like if they just had one different exposure, if they just saw someone else 
that kind of look like them in a position that they never thought that they could have, I think that that's when we can start changing things. Yeah, I think another way we can impact this, and I was thinking about something Kay said, um, you know, we have a critical mass. Um, so, for example, the black consumer is significant in this country. Like, we, we consume a lot. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, when economic decisions are made or black people are channeling their resources elsewhere, um, I think that's also another way to get a seat at, at, at the table too as well. And especially um, what, what Kay was saying is if, you're, if those dollars have been channeled to, um, you know, getting, consulting a black physician versus a white physician, that critical mass is still there. And at some point it can't be ignored. I mean, the black consumer in this country, um, we consume a lot, <laughs> but we can also use that to our advantage in some of these things. Any last comment from Kay about this or what can we do in the um, meantime? Yes. I, yeah, I, no, actually, I agree with ev everything that, you know, uh, Kwame, David and Derek just said. Um, and I, I, I'll add to this to um, the only thing I'll add to it is us being patient with each other. Right. Um, for example, with, with black businesses, what I've noticed is that people are more critical of them, our own people. Right. It's like, don't yeah. don't use this black person. No, don't use this black contractor. Yeah. Right? And, I, and I think that 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 mentality has to change. Right. Because we have to be patient that they don't have the they don't have hundreds, hundreds of years of like, you know, of of like experience or, you know, and a hundred year establishment like Goldman Sachs is not the same as a, a black bank that just opened up a year ago. Right. You know, all like. So we just have to be patient and just have to give them a chance to do good work, to build themselves. And that's, that's just basically how I, I, I just, that's the one thing that I want all of us to take from this George Floyd thing, right? Because I, I think we just, you, you understand how other people treat us, right? Let's not treat each other the same way. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah. I, I, I think that's brilliant. And you know what, Kay? I've been guilty of that. And, you know, I guess recent events has really changed my mindset um, in that I, I, I have to give my own a chance um, yeah. because I'm not being part of the solution. I'm just increasing the problem, to be honest. Um, and and I, I want to be part of the solution. So even what you just said right there just resonated with me. I did feel very guilty. And I thought, wow, yeah, you know, that's, I, I, I'm definitely convicted and it's something that, you know, um, I have been pondering over and we, we definitely have to change. Well, definitely I have to change. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've had, I think, a really good conversation. Yeah, we, honestly, it's been a fantastic conversation and I, I feel that conversations are so important to have because it brings, it, it brings healing and it allows us to open up and it, there's a lot of wisdom shared as well. Um, it encourages you as well to let you know that um, there's similar stories that we've all been through and that we probably haven't shared with other people and that we shared on this platform to, you know, similar stories that we know that we're, we're not alone. And, you know, we've heard advice from each other on how to, you know, handle certain things and um, heard each other's struggles as well. And for me, 
nothing beats a good conversation. Even in the Bible, Jesus had a conversation with um, the Samaritan woman um, in John 4, and there was healing that came out of that. So I'm a really big fan of conversation. And that's why we decided to have this conversation today, because um, our community um, is hurting and, mm. and hurting real bad. And these are things that we need to address so that the other communities, the white, the Asian communities as well, and the other communities can listen to our voice and understand that, listen, we've been choked for many years and this is the time for us to, for, for us to stand up and let our voice be heard. Yeah, yeah. So thank you guys so much for coming on The God's Knot. Um, so much, so much yeah, thank you. what you have said. Um, and I hope that, yeah, we stay as one community, connect with each other as well. Um, so, guys, and thanks all to our listeners who are listening. You can find us on Instagram, The God's Not. So check us out and all major platforms. So, yeah, wow, a lot to think about. And remember, Black lives, they matter. They matter. <laughs>